This is the Sasquatch's Monsters of the Clubhouse. Tales of when athletes throw it all away and end up behind bars or worse. Episode 6 is an unusual episode. It is in fact a double header. As a fan of both true crime and sport, a period of deep fascination for me is America in the late 70s to the early 90s. The invention of cable TV meant athletes were no longer confined to the back pages of the broadsheet, but rather became cultural icons as well known as movie stars and musicians. The birth of the athlete as the celebrity, in conjunction with so many socio-cultural factors in the wake of Vietnam, make it the perfect breeding ground for many of the athletes that feature in my episodes. This episode in particular features on Willie Akins, Fast Eddie Johnson, and the crack cocaine epidemic. Willie Mays Aikens, born October 14th, 1954, is a former Major League Baseball first baseman. He had established himself as one of the top sluggers in the game before drugs derailed his career. In 1994, Aikens was sentenced to 20 years in prison on four counts of crack cocaine distribution and one count of use of firearm during drug trafficking. He was released on June 4, 2008 after changes in federal drug laws and is sometimes cited as an example of the results of mandatory minimum sentencing in drug-related crimes. This is his story. Aikens grew up in poverty in the Bruce Hill community of Seneca, South Carolina. He was a standout athlete in baseball, football and basketball at Seneca High School and attended historically black South Carolina State University on a baseball and football scholarship. When South Carolina State dropped to baseball after Aikens freshman year, Willie McNeil Aiken's high school baseball coach helped him catch on with a semi-professional summer baseball league in Baltimore, Maryland. While playing in Baltimore, he caught the eye of California Angels scout Walter Yous and was selected by the Angels with the number two pick in the January 1975 Major League Baseball draft. Aiken soon emerged as one of the top sluggers in California's farm system, slugging a league-leading 30 home runs and driving in 117 runs for the El Paso Diablos in 1976. He debuted with the Angels in 1977, however, 
after batting an unimpressive .230 with no home runs, mostly as a pitch, pinch hitter and designated hitter, he was returned to the minors. He received a second call to the majors that September, but far even worse. Aikens returned to his slugging ways in 1978, batting .326 with 29 home runs and 110 runs for the Pacific Coast League's Salt Lake City Gold. He returned to the majors in 1979, replacing Rod Carew at first base in June and July while the future Hall of Famer was out with a thumb injury. He batted .280 with 21 home runs and 81 RBIs in his rookie season. That winter, he and Rance Mullinkins were traded to the Kansas City Royals for Al Cohen's, Todd Cruz and a player to be named later. Aikens inherited the first base job upon his arrival in Kansas City. This despite not being a very good fielder. He had committed the league leading 12 hours in 1980. Recovering from knee surgery, he got off to a slow start, but hit well in the second half of the season. He finished second to George Brett on his team in both home runs and RBIs, with 20 and 98 respectively. The Royals won their division by 14 games to face the New York Yankees in the American League Championship Series for the third time in four years. After having come up short in 1976, 1977 and 1978 seasons, the Royals swept the Yankees in three games in the 1980 American League Championship Series to face the Philadelphia Phillies in the World Series. Aikens hit two home runs in Game 1 on his 26th birthday and Game 4 of the 1980 World Series. He was until Chase Utley accomplished the same feat in 2009, the only player in World Series history to hit two home runs in the same game twice during the World Series. He also collected the game-winning RBI in the 10th inning of Game 3, the Royals' first ever win of a World Series game. Aikens batted .40 but the Royals lost the World Series in six games. Aikens led the Royals in both home runs and RBIs in the strike-shortened 1981 season. His Royals returned to the postseason, but were swept by the Oakland Athletics in the 1981 American League Division Series. For his part, Aikens batted .333 and also reached base three times. However, he failed to score or drive in any runs. He batted .30 for the first time in his career in 1983, only to see his career rapidly begin to decline afterwards. Towards the end of the 1983 season, Aikens and several of his Royals teammates were questioned by US attorney Jim Marquez in connection with a federal cocaine probe. Following the season, Aikens Jerry Martin and Willie Wilson pleaded guilty to attempting to purchase cocaine while former teammate Vita Blue pleaded guilty to possession of 3 grams of cocaine. Aikens, Blue, Martin and Wilson 
were sentenced to three months in prison. Shortly after Aiken's November 17th sentencing, he was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays for designated hitter George Horta. Aikens was originally suspended by baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn for a year. Following a May 15, 1984 review, he was reinstated and joined his Toronto teammates in Minnesota the next day. In 93 games, Aikens hit 11 home runs and drove in 26. The Jays released Aikens a month into the 1985 season and re-signed him to a minor league contract. In his final major league at bat on April 27th, Aikens walloped a pinch hit two-run homer in the ninth inning to tie the ball game. The Blue Jays would win it in the tent. Nevertheless, Aikens was let go and despite a healthy .311 batting average and 16 home runs with the Syracuse Chiefs, he never returned to the majors. He played four games for the New York Mets AAA affiliate, the Tidewater Tides, in 1996, before heading to Mexico to join the Mexican Pacific League's Yaquis de Braun. Aikens played for six years in the Mexican League, where he was regularly among the league's top hitters. He batted .454 in 1986, one of the highest single averages in professional baseball history. But this very much marked the end of his professional career. His career in the underworld, however, was just beginning. Aikens was called to testify in the Pittsburgh drug trial of Curtis Strong as his major league career was winding down. His legal problems continued after his appointment, culminating in his being found guilty of selling 50 grams of crack cocaine to an undercover police officer and sentenced to 20 years and 8 months in prison in 1994. Aikens had developed a heavy cocaine habit and by his own admission was constantly using the drug from 1991 to 1994. Supposedly, a former lover tipped off the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department that Aikens was selling narcotics at his home. Consequently, in December of 1993, the police put Aikens condominium under surveillance. The police observed numerous individuals entering Aikens' home and then exiting after a brief stay. On December 8, 1993, an undercover police officer named Ginger Locke approached Aikens standing in the garage of his condominium and asked for directions. After Aikens gave Locke directions, he told her that he was listed in the phone book and asked her to call him sometime. Locke called Aikens numerous times in order to establish a rapport with him. On January 18, 1994, Locke called Aikens and told him that she had loaned her car to a friend and that the friend had been caught with some stuff 
and found crack cocaine in the car. Locke's story initiated a discussion about narcotics. Eventually, Aikens let Locke know that he could get her all the stuff. Later that day, Locke drove to Aikens' home and asked him if she could buy her an eight ball, i.e. an eighth of an ounce of cocaine. Aikens asked Locke if she wanted her cocaine hard, crack form, or soft, powder form. She replied that she wanted it hard. Aikens pointed to some crack cocaine sitting on an ottoman in his, in his den and indicated that he did not have a full eight ball of crack on hand. He told Locke that he would have to make some more. Using equipment which he kept in his den, Aikens quickly proceeded to make crack by mixing powder cocaine with baking soda in a glass beaker, pouring water on it, heating it with a handheld torch, baking it in a microwave and then rinsing it with cold water. Aikens weighed some of the crack that he had made along with some of the crack which he had already possessed on a diagram scale and sold it to Locke for $200. On January 24, 1994, Locke visited Aikens' home to buy more cocaine. Aikens had Locke drive into his supplier's Kansas City home, where he used Locke's money to, to purchase powder cocaine. On the way back to Aikens' home, Aikens had Locke stop at stores where he could buy beakers and baking powder. When Aikens and Locke returned to Aikens' home, Aikens converted the powder cocaine into crack and sold the crack to Locke. On January 28th and February 23rd of 1994, Locke returned to Aikens' home and arranged to buy more crack. On each occasion, Aikens called a supplier and had Locke accompany him while he obtained the powder cocaine. On each occasion, Aikens converted the powder into crack upon returning to his home and sold the crack to Locke. In total, Aikens ended up selling about 2.2 ounces to the undercover cop. He was arrested on March 2nd, 1994 and after a March 17th mistrial, a grand jury indicted Aikens on four charges of crack cocaine distribution in violation of 21 USC on March 25th. Because of the tougher federal guidelines for crack, he was sentenced as if he had sold 15 pounds of powder cocaine. He received the maximum sentence of 15 years and 8 months and received an additional 5 years because he had allegedly had a loaded gun in a room where drugs were sold. Aiken served his prison sentence in the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta and was scheduled to be released in 2012. He was released on June 4, 2008, three months after Congress approved new guidelines in the federal drug laws and made them retroactive. Hall McRae, the only former Royals teammate with whom Aikens corresponded with while in prison, set Aikens up with a job in road construction, working in manholes. Since his release, Aikens has spoken at schools about his experiences and to the Royals' young players 
always hoping to return to baseball. In November 2008, he apologised to Royals fans and the people of Kansas City in the Kansas City Star. On February 1st, 2011, the Royals announced that they had hired Aikens as a minor league coach who will be based at the franchise's complex at Surprise, Arizona. The employment was delayed when his wife, Sarah, suffered a stroke, believed to have, be, to have been a complication of lupus. It is here that the trail on Aikens goes dead. It is believed he is still currently living in Atlanta, where he cares for his wife, Sarah. Edward Lee Johnson Jr. was an American professional basketball player. He played 10 seasons in the NBA, mainly as a member of the Atlanta Hawks from 1977 to 1987. He was nicknamed Fast Eddie for speed and quickness on the court. Johnson's notorious off-court behavior due to drug abuse harmed his reputation as a player. He was traded by the Hawks to the Cleveland Cavaliers for the end of the 1985-1986 season. He played for the Tampa Bay Thrillers in the Continental Basketball Association during the 1986-87 season in an attempt to return to the NBA and received a mid-season call-up to play for the Seattle Supersonics in what would be his final professional stint. Johnson's playing career ended when he received a suspension by the NBA due to a cocaine addiction in 1987. His life after basketball delved further into criminal activities and culminated in Johnson being sentenced to life in prison for sex crimes on a minor in 2008. He died of an undisclosed illness when serving his sentence. This is his story. Johnson was born in Ocala, Florida, in February of 1955. He was raised in Wearsdale, Florida. The oldest of five children, Johnson's childhood was during a time in America when Jim Crowism was breathing its dying breath. As a result, Johnson was one of the first African-American students to attend the previously all-white Lake Weir High School, where he started all four years. He graduated as one of the top students in his class and received a scholarship to attend the University of Auburn in Alabama. Johnson played college basketball for the Auburn Tigers from 1973 to 1977. He led the Southeastern Conference, SEC, in scoring as a freshman with 21.8 points per game. Johnson led the Tigers in scoring and assists for his first three seasons and was nominated to the All-SEC Coaches First Team from 1974 to 1976. He allegedly had conflicts with Tigers coach Bob Davis, who accused Johnson of having a bad attitude. Johnson's scoring average dipped each season with the Tigers and caused worry amongst professional scouts 
as to if he was a problematic player. He was, however, draft eligible in 1977. Johnson was selected by the Atlanta Hawks as the 49th overall pick in the 1977 NBA draft, averaging 10.5 points. The rookie helped the Hawks return to the playoffs after a four-year absence, a feat repeated in six of Johnson's eight full years with the club. Johnson became a starter in 1978-1979, and during that season, Johnson advanced as far as he ever would in pursuit of an NBA championship, losing in the conference semifinals to the Washington Bullets. He was a starter in four consecutive seasons, averaging at least 16 points each season. Fans voted Johnson into a starting spot in the 1980 NBA All-Star Game, where he scored 22 points on 11 of 16 shooting. He returned as a starter in the 1981 NBA All-Star Game, where he scored 16 points on 7 of 12 shooting. For all of his successes on the court, off-court issues were evident early on in his career. Johnson first began using cocaine as a college student. He passed out during a celebratory function at Auburn in 1979 in what was the first public indication of his drug habits. Johnson denied that his drug habits led to personal issues and stated, the whole idea of me abusing drugs is outlandish. During the 1980 NBA offseason, Johnson escaped unharmed after jumping off a second story apartment balcony and fled across a parking lot while two men fired gunshots at him in what police believed was part of a drug dispute. Three weeks later, he was arrested for possession of cocaine while driving a rental car in Atlanta. The charges were dropped because the police, police's search of the car was deemed illegal. Johnson was taken to a private psychiatric facility in Cobb County, Georgia, and underwent therapy for almost a week. The day after Johnson checked himself out of the facility, he was arrested for stealing a car from a car dealer, but the charges were again dropped. Johnson was diagnosed with manic depression by psychiatrists in the Cobb County facility. He, however, doubted the accuracy of the diagnosis. He was prescribed with lithium tablets that he stopped taking during the 1980-81 NBA season without the knowledge of the Hawks team. Johnson believed that he no longer needed medication and that it contributed to his tiredness during the games. The Hawks became aware of the resumption of, of Johnson's erratic behaviour in July of 1981 and persuaded him to submit to a local hospital. Johnson showed up at the Hawks training camp in October directly from hospital and became increasingly disruptive as he rebuked teammates, left the floor to play with a child in the stands and jumped rope on the sidelines while oblivious to his surroundings during practice. After being so alarmed by his actions, Atlanta Hawks President Michael Giron and General Manager Stan Caston contacted Johnson's psychiatrist, who signed a commitment order to have Johnson placed in Grady Memorial Hospital. Johnson was picked up by police 
before a planned practice session and taken to Grady. Johnson was taken off the Hawks suspended list on November 21st, 1981. Johnson was traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers for Johnny Davis during the 1985-1986 NBA season. He considered this year with the Cavaliers to be a waste. Johnson played 20 games in the Continental Basketball Association for the Tampa Bay Trillers in the 1986-87 season as he needed visibility to work his way back into the NBA. He signed a contract with the Seattle Supersonics as they needed an experienced guard for the end of the 1986-87 NBA season. Supersonics coach Bernie Bickerstaff had a closed door meeting with his players before Johnson was signed. While the team assigned someone to monitor Johnson's activities due to the wariness of his volatility. Johnson was considered a desirable person during the NBA season who went out of control during the offseason. Pat Williams, who was then general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers stated, Eddie became a time bomb every summer. Johnson battled a cocaine addiction throughout his career and after several suspensions, he finally checked himself into rehab in 1986. After he failed to follow through on mandatory counseling, the NBA suspended him in 1987. Johnson averaged 15.1 points per game in 670 games played during a 10-year NBA career. Johnson's life continued to spiral out of control following his banishment from the NBA. He was arrested and convicted for a litany of crimes over the years, including burglary, robbery, assault on a police officer, and shoplifting. He admitted that he had a frequent drug problem, which had initially cost him his career. In August 2006, Johnson committed an even more heinous crime, the rape of a minor. Johnson entered a home in Florida's Parkside Garden Apartments, uninvited, and found an eight-year-old girl who was babysitting her three younger brothers. He told one of the brothers to lock the front door and ordered the girl to her bedroom. There he pulled her shorts down, fondled her, and then raped her. In the girl's statement, she said Johnson told her not to tell anyone of the incident. Johnson fled the apartment after committing the crime and when the girl's mother returned and learned what happened, she immediately called the police. When Johnson was arrested, he was already waiting trial for the rape of a 25-year-old woman just a few weeks prior to the attack on the 8-year-old girl. On October 28, 2008, Johnson was convicted of sexual battery of a child under the age of, eight, of 12 and lewd and lascivious molestation of a child under the age of 12. The sentence handed down was life in prison without the possibility of parole. Johnson died on October 26th, 2022 of an undisclosed illness in Milton, Florida.
And thus ends the tale of Fast Eddie Johnson, undoubtedly a talented and promising individual. Sadly for Johnson and those affected by his crimes, so many intervention attempts for both his mental health and drug issues were unsuccessful. Sadly, he passed away at the age of just 65. The next episode of Monster Clubhouse is out next Monday. Make sure to leave a review wherever you find this podcast. And make sure to follow the Mid-Season Slump on Instagram to find out more of some of the pieces we put together. Or alternatively, check out our website, The Mid-Season Slump. That's www.themid-seasonslump.com. Thanks for listening.